0: Will please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. You can look in your Bibles in the chairs in front of you if you need one, and it's on page nine eighty. And this fall, we are in a sermon series on Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, the book of Philippians. So we're making our way through this this wonderful piece of good news that shows us all that we have is Christ and. As we read our passage of study this morning, which will be verses 1 through 5 in Philippians 2, I'd like you to remember that this came to us in the form of a letter. It was a letter to a church being encouraged by their pastor. This is God's word to us this morning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, of others have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus let's pray father we thank you for your holy word we thank you that we have in our own language we thank you that you did not leave us alone that you gave us these instructions this encouragement to help us live the christian life and to look to jesus So we look to him now, and we ask for your blessing on it as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. Again, one of the the challenges that that preachers often have as we preach expositionally through the scriptures, verse by verse, and books of the Bible is helping the congregation understand these verses don't just exist in a vacuum. Uh, they, They all work together. In other words, all scripture is related. All scripture is connected. All scripture is one story. And in this case, the Philippians, this letter was written to real people in a real church. And that's helpful for us to keep in mind as we study this book. And specifically as we study this passage, originally we know that the book of Philippians, it did not have chapters and verses. It would have been one long scroll that would have been read to a a local church and in our passage today philippians 2 verses 1 through 5 it's connected to what was said before so if you want to let your eyes look in back in chapter 1 specifically verses 27 through 30 we see here's kind of the connector between chapter 1 into chapter 2 with what paul has been saying And at the end of chapter 1, he said that Christians are called to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this exhortation that Paul gives to the believers here is to live lives worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That exhortation is actually continuing into our passage of study this morning. And so what the apostle is teaching here the church is that the call to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call for Christians to be unified in the faith. We have a call to unity here by the Apostle Paul. Or to use Paul's words specifically, that the believers in Christ here in Philippi, they're called to have the same mind, he says, in verse 3, I believe. The same love and being in full accord with one another. This is the language Paul uses to talk about the unity of the faith that the believers of Philippi power to have. Now, let's be sure here, the Apostle Paul is not talking about unity in the sense of, you know, can we all just get along? You know, can we all just be on the same team? He, he's not saying that all Christians are supposed to dress alike or look alike or even agree on every single subject matter. But what the Apostle here is calling the church to here is that when it comes to the gospel, And when it comes to living out the gospel, Christians are to be unified. We're called to be one in the body of Christ. And so this means that the way we treat each other, it matters. The way we live our lives together, that matters. When Jesus says to love your neighbor, that first and foremost means those that are closest to us in the church. Perhaps the most practical way we can demonstrate loving our neighbor is in the context of the local church. But apparently here in the Philippian church, there were some that were not getting along. They were struggling. Maybe there was some some strife, some disagreements. And I don't think that their struggle amounted to the same struggle and the same strife that, say, the church in Corinth or Galatia had. Because in those letters written by the Apostle Paul, he was a disappointed father writing to his his children. He was upset with them. And so here in Philippians, Paul's not you know dressing down the church in Philippi saying, how dare you? No, he's, he's calling them to unity, and he's calling them to, to humility, and he's calling them to love one another. But apparently there were some disagreements later in the letter, and you can flip ahead to Philippians 4, verse 2. There were some women in the church who were not getting along. And the Apostle Paul actually calls them out. He says, I entreat Eudora and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. They were causing quite the stir. But again, the Apostle Paul didn't say, can't we all just get along? No, he calls for agreement in the Lord. In other words, when it comes to the gospel, of the Lord Jesus Christ, when it comes to our relationship to one another in Jesus Christ, we can and must have agreement. And so in our passage today, Paul will mention four truths, four truths on how we can and do agree in the Lord. These are gospel truths that unify us. And then he will follow these four truths by the way we can practice this unity of the Christian life in the local church. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christians are called to understand our unity in Christ and we're called to practice that unity. Theologians and pastors for many, many years have called this the indicatives of the Christian life followed by the imperatives of the Christian life. The imperatives always follow the indicatives. In other words, We're called to be something. We're called to do something. We're called to live out our faith, and we're called to do that because of something. And that because of something of these unifying factors that the Apostle Paul, these truths that he will teach us here in these first few verses, these truths that all those share in the Christian life. And so before Paul calls the believers to Unity. He reminds them to remember these wonderful reasons, these wonderful truths that Christians have and can rejoice over. These are the indicatives. And so look there in verses 1 and 2. In this passage, Paul's using kind of a, a classical rhetorical argumentative <laughs> style. He's using the if-then style. If these things are true, then do this. So look what he says there. He says, if these things, he's, again, he's being rhetorical. A, a, a helpful way to understand that he's not, he's not questioning these things. Again, he's being rhetorical. He's saying, because these things are true. That's probably a helpful way for us to look at this. Because these things are true. These are the things that Christians are to be like-minded or to have in common. These are the things we have in common as a body of Christ, as a family of God. We're to demonstrate these characteristics. These are the things that mark all those whose lives have been changed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first is because there is encouragement in Christ, he says. If there's any encouragement in Christ, around 164 times there's about. In the apostle Paul's letter, he uses this phrase in Christ or in him. In Christ. That's the summary of the Apostle Paul's theology that he teaches all throughout his letters. In a sense, this is what it means to be a Christian. We are in Christ. To be a Christian means Christ is in you. He dwells in you by his Holy Spirit. Is that not the most amazing thing ever? Sometimes that truth just passes us by. But believers who trust and know Jesus Christ is in you. You are in Christ. Every other religion in the world will tell you, here's how you go to God. This is how you get to God. God doesn't live in you. You go to him. But not the religion of Christ. No, Christianity Teaches us this wonderful truth that the Almighty God comes and dwells in those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ by faith. And you get this amazing promise Christ lives in you. Have you ever thought about the implications of that truth? It's worthy of our meditation every day. What does it mean that Christ is in you? Where do we begin? There's so much to be thankful for. There's so much we could talk about, but let's just, let's just mention a few of the big ones here, a few of the big, amazing, awesome promises that we have because of our union in Christ. We have justification. Do you know what that means? That's not just a big theology word. It's a Bible word. It means that if you are in Christ Jesus, your sin has been atoned for. You have been declared righteous. Righteous. Before a holy God. The other big one. Sanctification. Think about this truth. If Christ is in you, you now have the power. You now have the strength. You have the Holy Spirit who lives in you. That allows you and helps you to die to sin. To live to righteousness. Because Christ in you. Adoption. We're all adopted here. We all are Engrafted into the body of Christ because of Jesus, God is our Father. Redemption, redemption in Christ Jesus, your sin has been paid for. Your debt has been wiped clean. That is good news. We could go on and on about this, couldn't we? But Christian, look how much encouragement that we have in Christ. How much good stuff we have because of Jesus Christ and being in him. Church, let's all rejoice with one another and be encouraged that we are in Christ. And that's just the first thing he says. Let's look at the second indicative of the Christian life, the second truth, because there is comfort from God's love, he says. Paul is very general here. He says comfort and love, but I think he's referring to the Father's love here. We can make that inference from other things he says in his letters. For instance, in Thessalonians, he says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. How great The Father's love is for us. This is a truth that should cause Christians to rejoice and bring agreement among us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all blessing. I think I've picked that song at least two or three times these past months. I want to keep singing it, and the music team keeps saying, Wilson, we keep keep singing that over and over and over. But it's true. It's good how deep the Father's love for us. Again, this is a truth that is, is unrivaled throughout the history of the world. Other other religions, other, other cults, other sects would say you are a heretic for referring to God as your father. But we rejoice in our God who is our Father, who shows compassion and mercy. And love abounding, he is the great God of the Bible. What great unity of faith we have in knowing that there is comfort from a loving God who is our Father. The third indicative or truth here is because we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, a fellowship in the Holy Spirit. You see, now we have this complete picture of Trinitarian love and Trinitarian blessing we have comfort, we have encouragement in Christ, the love of God the Father, and fellowship in the Holy Spirit. We have encouragement in Christ, fellowship with the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Again, an amazing truth unique to Christianity. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Elsewhere, Paul would write in Ephesians, in Him, you are also. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And the same, it is the same Spirit of God, who dwells in all His people, building us up in the faith, allowing us to have this koinonia fellowship, this fellowship and partnership in the gospel. That this true fellowship, this true unity and participation with one another, the Holy Spirit binds us all together. We can rejoice with one another over this fellowship that we have with each other through the Spirit of Christ Jesus. The fourth truth he mentions in there, verse 1, he says, because there is affection and sympathy from God. These words could also be translated as compassion and mercy. And of course, these are gifts from God. Paul would tell the Romans in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 1, that in view of God's mercy, because of God's mercy, we are called to, to live sacrificially. And one of the ways that we live sacrificially is by loving one another, showing affection, sympathy, and compassion, and mercy. And of course, this reminds us of our... God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, whose love is higher than the heavens are above the earth. We have these things and we are called to show these things. So therefore, because these things are true, because we have these things in the church, in the body of Christ, we have encouragement in Christ, the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, Because these are ours in Christ, Paul now calls the saints in Philippi. And, of course, we are called to complete his joy, he says. Complete my joy. That's kind of an interesting phrase. What does he mean there? In other words, he's saying, keep going, church. I mean, he is cheering them on. I won't use a football illustration here, I promise. Keep growing in your faith. Keep going in these things. Keep encouraging one another. Keep having this mindset that reflects the the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ because these are the indicatives of the Christian life. And because these things are true, they lead to the imperatives. They lead to things that we are called to practice in the Christian life. And so let's look at those things, three of them. Three ways we're called to practice Christian unity. These are imperatives. These are commands. The first is Christians are called to be selfless. Look what he says there in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Again, this is a clear command. It is an imperative of the gospel. It is absolutely essential to gospel living Believers are called to be selfless. And being selfless means this. It means thinking of yourself less. But the truth is, this is very, very hard. Because I know most of you in this room, and you know me, you're all very selfish. (laughs) And I am too. We think about ourselves all the time. Let's face it, the biggest form of idolatry in this room, I'm not worried about any of you going home and worshiping a totem pole in your backyard. If you are, please see Mike Honeywell. We'll arrange a meeting. But I know that we all can go home and worship the God of self all day long. We will love the God of self, we will feed the God of self, we will worship ourselves. It's one of the biggest ways that sin has ravished our lives and has made us completely self-centered. It's depressing. Yet one of the wonderful truths of the gospel, one of the greatest blessings for those whose lives have been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we can be freed from trusting in ourselves and put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And the good news is that when we do this, though that selfishness is still there, though that old man is still there, though that old nature still resides, we are now given the power by the Holy Spirit to say, I don't want to live that way. I want to love the Lord my God first and love my neighbor as myself. We all worship the God of self, but may God give us the grace daily to repent of this sin, to turn from it, and to turn to him, to love others. But think about all the ways that our selfishness gets in the way of us living a happy and peaceful life. The truth is, when we're selfish, we're 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 getting off the blueprints. God created us to love him and to love our neighbor. And so when we want to put ourselves first and love ourselves first, there's no happiness, there's no peace, there's no satisfaction. And this is why I can rear its ugly head in our marriages. How many conflicts are created? in our marriages because we are selfish, because we want to be right, and we want to prove that we are right, and we want to show that we are right, and we want to be justified when we are right. We want to win every argument, and some of you are smiling and going, it still doesn't work even if I win. It's all that selfishness, right? It's it's all me, me, me. What about in our places of work? How many of our problems in our places of work are we blaming on others? My boss or my, or my co-worker or that guy that sneezes too loud or whatever. What about at home? What about up with our families? Children, children, let me have your attention here for a minute. How many times have you gotten upset or mad at your parents or your brothers and sisters because you didn't get what you wanted. That's being selfish. And as I thought about this week, and I thought about my life when I was a child, there are many, many, many times I can remember going to my room mad and angry and crying and frustrated. Not because my parents and my siblings were trying to make my life as bad as possible. It was because I was selfish. It's because I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't get my own way. Lord, forgive me. The truth of the matter is if we're all living our lives this way, dead set on being right and putting ourselves first, living out of selfish ambition. No matter what the cost, it will always end in disappointment. The fruit will be born. But the chief way we can practice selflessness is remembering that our first inclination is always to be to put ourselves first. We need to recognize that is our natural inclination. And so we need to recognize it and we need to ask God to help us recognize it and repent. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, Paul says. But there's a second imperative here. And he says, do nothing out of conceit. In other words, Christians are called to be meek. Do nothing out of conceit, Paul says, or vain conceit. In other words, just like our selfish nature, we're not to be conceited, which is to be prideful or boastful. Or arrogant. I said a few weeks ago, and I believe it, there are so many times each day we all need to tell the me monster to calm down. You know the me monster, don't you? Me, 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 no matter what. Jesus did not say, blessed are those who boast. Blessed are the proud. Blessed are those who always get what they want. No, he said, blessed are the meek. Not the weak, the meek. Those who are lowly, and humble, for they shall inherit the earth, our Lord says. How peaceful, how harmonious would our our homes, would our churches, would our lives be if if we all practice being meek. The third, and perhaps greatest there, imperative that we are called to in the Christian life is that of humility. Christians are called to be humble. St. Augustine said that for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing. The second thing and the third thing. It is reported that someone once asked the famous reformer Martin Luther to name the three great virtues of life, and he said the first is humility. The second it's humility. And the third is, you got it. Humility. The ultimate Christian virtue. How do we define humility? Paul actually does for us. Look there in verse 4. Here is humility. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Others first. We preach that at our home so much, (laughs) at our schools. We want to preach that at our church. Lord, give us the grace to live others first. This is the great Christian ethic. Humility is a wonderful virtue, and it's illustrated for us over and over and over in Scripture. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector that we read about in our Scripture reading this morning. It's easy for us all to be like the Pharisee, right? Lord, I'm here at church today. I I gave my tithe. I I, I got my children here. I'm doing well. But the tax collector was off in the distance. He didn't even feel worthy to approach the the Lord in worship. And he beat his breast. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're all called to have the humility before God like this tax collector. As one of those great proverbs in the scripture says, to clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, Peter says. I'm sure that there are tons and tons of lessons in my life that the Lord has taught me humility, but Maybe one of the biggest ones I remember is when I was a young college student. The Lord called me to serve here in North Alabama at a Christian camp for boys. So here I am, 19 years old, and so this is what you can do to teach humility to a 19-year-old. Give him a cabin with 10 8-year-olds. I'm still not sure that director was practicing wisdom when he did that with me. It was hard because it was all about me, and, and college can be like that. It's all about me. I want to serve me. I want to do what's, what's best for me. I, I want to live for me, and then an eight-year-old telling you, I got to go to the bathroom you know? or I can't find my underwear or whatever, and after 10 days of that, I was done. I'm like, I cannot do this an entire summer. And I'm telling this to one of my co-counselors, and thankfully the Lord gave him wisdom, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, I've been struggling too, but I've been thinking, you know, these eight-year-olds, their actions, their attitudes, that's the way I am before God. I'm like that before God, my Father. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I was there for me. I was there for me, not... For others it was a great lesson in humility here's how the church here's how we are to practice humility put others first think of others first ask yourselves how can i serve my brother or sister in christ how can i put their needs first above my own this is so hard to do it's so hard to do in the church Because it's so easy to complain, right? We want to complain about this or that. We need changed hearts. We need power outside of ourselves to put others first, to live humbly before the Lord our God. But as we close here, we must always be careful that we don't summarize Christianity as just a list of do's and don'ts. Be this don't be that, right? That's not what Christianity is. This is why we started with the indicatives. This is why we started with these truths that we need to hold on to and grasp that lead to the, the imperatives, that lead to the way we are to live our lives. We're, we don't see Christianity as a set of rules. We need to be reminded that Christianity is about a person. It's about a person. It's the person and work Is in Christ alone our hope is found. It is he that we follow. It is Jesus that models for us the Christian life. It is he who demonstrated the other's first mindset, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And so for this reason, Paul appeals to Christian unity that is rooted in the gospel, which is to say it is rooted in Christ. He is our example. He is our head. He's the mind that we are to have. How do we overcome our selfishness and our vainglory, our conceit? We look to Jesus. We strive to have the mind of Christ. How do we practice humility? We, we look to Christ who humbled himself. We'll read here next week even to death on a cross. What is to be our motivation to put others first? Is to look to him who lived and who died and who rose again the mindset that we are to have is that which is demonstrated for us by our lord and savior jesus christ and i can't wait for our passage next week as we see these wonderful truths unfolded in the following verses may god help us to walk humbly before him as we look to our savior let's pray Oh Lord, we, we freely confess to you that this is hard. If we honestly look at our lives and in our hearts, we are selfish. Thank you. Thank you that we have a Savior who is the ultimate example of selflessness. Thank you for His humility, His love. His other's first life that he lived, he lived it perfectly for us. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, would you help us to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.